When I was a boy, there were seven words I dreaded hearing. They were small words, each of of but one syllable, but when strung together, they formed a question that overwhelmed me with a flood of strong emotions. I didn't like those emotions. I'm British. (laughs) My people did not get where they are today by experiencing emotions. My strongest feeling was anger. Then there was resentment that someone bigger and more powerful than I was about to put me in my place. Shame was there too, as was guilt. In fact, enough emotion to capture the interest of a whole convention of child psychologists for an entire weekend. These seven words were only ever used by my father. Now, don't jump to the conclusion that these seven words were a prequel to punishment. They weren't. On the contrary, they were words of grace. They offered me a second chance, a mulligan of compassion. The scene was battle. Royalty in their castles, knights on war horses, humble foot soldiers and senior clerics. Chess. And my dad was good. I never beat him, not even once. He would often tease me in a generous, gentle kind of way. He'd fake losing, make some stupid and intentional mistakes just to encourage me. But I saw through his pretense. I still knew that the silverback had the beating of the young male pretender. And then, after trying to encourage me for a while, he'd produced the coup de grace, seemingly snatching an unlikely victory out of the jaws of defeat. He never let me win. And I wouldn't want him to either. There's only one thing worse than losing, and that is being offered victory by an opponent who pities you. Now, those seven words, they were these. Do you want to take that back? (laughs) He'd say it in a friendly kind of way. He clearly thought he was doing me a favour. And it made my blood boil. I know he was being nice. I know he was giving me another chance. But all it did was make me furious. I would make a game-winning move, I thought. A move so cunning you could put a tail on it and call it a fox. And I'd be doing my internal touchdown dance as the crowd cheered and sang my name. I'd be making a mental lap of honour around the living room, waving to my fans and stooping to pick up the flowers they were throwing at my feet. I'd even take a Union Jack from someone and drape it around my shoulders as my teammates drenched me in a Gatorade shower. And then he'd say it. Do you want to take that back? But he'd never tell me why it was a terrible move. I had to work that out for myself. So I would sit there, grinding my teeth, fuming, resenting his generosity, and longing for Fritz, our miniature dachshund, to trot happily past wagging his tail and accidentally knock all the pieces off the board. Which he never did. Even the dog was conspiring to complete my humiliation. Do you want to take that back? No, I don't. And where's that four-legged sausage when I need him? (laughs) Do you want to take that back? Now, as Christians, 
We have heard and touched and smelled and tasted God's daily and eternal. Do you want to take that back? And our lives are built on the sure foundation of that gracious question. Do you want to take that back? He asks it again and again, offering us a fresh start, another chance, one more opportunity to begin again, and then another, and then another. But of course, God's forgiveness, the invitation to take it back, doesn't remove all the consequences of our actions. So in this way, there are some things you can't take back. You can't take back the stone once it's left your hand. You can't take, take back the curse once it's passed your lips. You can't take back the arrow you shot at someone's soul. You can't take back your promise once you've signed the deed. You can't take back the exam paper once you hand it in. And you can't take back your decision not to buy lamp oil when the bridegroom arrives and you have a parade to lead. Today, we read one of Jesus' most puzzling parables. It's the story of celebration, love and joy. But it's also the story of not being ready, not being bothered and not being happy. A tale of consequences. Ten bridesmaids waiting for a bridegroom. Five have oil for their lamps and five do not. Now the groom is longer than expected. So long does he take that the five bridesmaids without enough oil experience the shame of their lamps going out and there was no dachshund to knock the board over. My, do they want to take that back. Jesus calls them foolish But the lamps of the other five, the five who were far-sighted enough to prepare for the groom being late, remained blazing and strong, and Jesus calls those bridesmaids wise. A Jewish wedding at the time of Jesus had three parts to it. First came the betrothal. This was a bit like our engagement, but much more formal, with a strong moral and legal obligation for the couple to be married. And it lasted maybe a year or more. Part two of the wedding was a formal religious ceremony in the bride's home. And then came part three. A magnificent, glorious, never-ending banquet at the groom's house. Actually, it did have an ending seven days later, and it always started at sundown. So, imagine the excitement at the bride's house. The formal ceremony has just concluded. The bridegroom has gone home to check on the final preparations for the banquet, and everyone is deliriously waiting for him to return and sweep the woman of his dreams away to the feast. They will walk together through the evening streets, led by her bridesmaids with their lamps. A march of joy and celebration, but without the Gatorade shower. Do they want to take this back? No, they don't. But the the groom is delayed, and the scene in the bride's house is becoming fraught. 
Most anxious of all are the five of the ten bridesmaids, the foolish five, the careless five, the five who did not check their oil supplies and now face the humiliation of running to the oil merchant so they can lead the procession. But it's too late. Here comes the groom and the shame of the foolish five is complete. Now, if you think this is a parable about the second coming of Jesus and about how we are to be ready for this earth-shattering event, you're absolutely right. And if you think I'm going to preach on that subject this morning, you're completely wrong. Uh, Not because I'm a coward, although that is a pretty good reason not to, but because it's only three weeks till Advent, the season when the Christian church traditionally thinks about the return of Christ. So, if you can control your curiosity until December the 3rd, you will discover that delayed gratification is always sweeter than having what you want now. Instead, Like one of our ancient ancestors compelled to come into the cave and bask in the comforting warmth of the tribal fire, I am drawn by the flames of the torches the bridesmaids bore. They fascinate me. They make me wonder about oil and fire and sparks and flames and passion and energy. If you're male, you probably don't want me to call you a bridesmaid this morning, but tough, I'm going to. Because today, God asks all of us bridesmaids challenging but liberating questions. How's your oil? How is your flame? How brightly does your fire burn? Two weeks ago at the Thursday healing service, there was a Bible reading from Revelation. It was chapter 2, and God is speaking to a local church. And after congratulating them on their hard work for the gospel and their virtuous deeds, he says this, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. And this stung me. It was antiseptic on an open wound. I winced and recoiled in a way you do when the divine doctor is in the house. This was the needle of God's word. I see your hard work for me and for my church, but you have lost your first love. You're not as passionate, as focused, as uncompromising as you once were. So I allowed my memory to return to my early days as a Christian in my teens and my twenties. I did some embarrassing things, crazy things, things I'd counsel young adults today not to do, but I did them for God. I knocked on strangers' doors to tell people about Christ. I stood in the streets of a major industrial city and preached to passers-by. My spirit was willing, white-hot willing. My brain was often turned off, but my flame was a welder's torch. No doubt about its power and heat, but also capable of causing mayhem if used thoughtlessly, and I was all about thoughtlessness. Then I settled down 
I got a real job, started a family. I learned how to manage my flame, trim my torch appropriately. I went off to seminary and learned how to think critically and how to read the Bible with thought and maturity. My flame became structured, controlled, cooler, inoffensive. Less able to cause havoc, but less able to give warmth. By and by, cold fronts moved in. My flame flickered. Icy winds blew. Storms pelted. Floods washed away my good intentions, all the time threatening to extinguish my flame. By God's grace, somehow, it is still a light. But it's not as fiery as when I was 20. Do I want to take it back to somehow regain that intense flame of faith? Yes, if I could. The folk band Passenger sings about the loss of fire like this. One went out at a bus stop in Edinburgh. One went out in an English park. One went out in a nightclub when I was 15. Little lights in my heart. One went out when I lied to my mother, said the cigarettes she found were not mine. One went out within me. Now I smoke like a chimney. It's getting dark in this heart of mine. One went out in the back streets of Manchester. One went out in an airport in Spain. One went out, I've no doubt, when I grew up and moved out of the place where the boy used to play. One went out when Uncle Ben got his tumour. We used to fish, and I fish no more. We're born with millions of little lights shining in our hearts, and they die along the way till we're old and we're cold and lying in the dark, because they'll all burn out one day. I have two reactions to that song. I say, yes, I know that feeling. Many of my lights have flickered and died. The flame has dimmed as my enthusiasm for God has dwindled. My passion faded and my courage waned. I know it and it hurts. But you want to say something else to the poet, don't you? It's not as hopeless as he thinks. Our lights will not all burn out one day. For today, we can experience the renewal of our fire. This morning, we can allow the Holy Spirit to exhale his reviving breath into our souls and kindle the tiny, fragile flame. Right now, you can come to the Lord's table and as you eat and drink, caress the spark that will reignite the commitment you made at baptism. Do you want to take that back? No, you don't. Come down, O love divine. Seek thou this soul of mine and visit it with thine own ardour glowing. O comforter, draw near. Within my heart appear and kindle it, thy holy flame bestowing. O let it freely burn till earthly passions turn to dust and ashes in its heat consuming. And let thy glorious light shine ever on my sight and clothe me round the while my path illuming. 
And so the yearning strong with which the soul will long shall far outpass the power of human telling. For none can guess its grace till love create a place wherein the Holy Spirit makes a dwelling. Amen.